we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. This week, Foundry fellow Mary Bagdasarian sat down with fellow fellow Aidan Fertiline all about his work as a Landecker Democracy Fellow, the proposed Global Digital Compact out of the United Nations, and whether the multi-stakeholder model of internet governance really works. Hi, Aidan. Thank you so much for taking the time to join Tech Policy Grind. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course, uh, I'm excited to share your journey um, into tech policy and not only during uh, the next you know, minutes uh, on this podcast. And to kick us off, I would just ask a very broad question, uh, which would be just tell us about yourself and how did you get to where you are now? Sure. Thanks for the question. So I was born in Australia, but I spent my formative childhood years in Indonesia and Canada. And I later lived in Argentina and the United Kingdom. And I've spent the past five years in Germany. I really have no sentimental nationalism. I'm perpetually confused as to where I am from. But I think what I ultimately believe is that the world is more similar than it is different. For me, the internet was always a form of escapism. And suddenly as a young queer person, it was also in some senses, a lifeline. And I don't mean that in a particularly morbid sense, but the role of very large online platforms in facilitating and filtering public life cannot be understated. So I was always drawn to the internet and I knew that I wanted a career that involved, in some senses, the internet. I call myself now a public interest technologist. I work on internet governance. Internet governance is a large, complex, ambiguous topic. When we think about regulation of the internet, we might be thinking about a narrow but very important set of questions about specific institutions, such as the Internet Engineering Task Force or the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Those are the institutions that can be said to govern the technical infrastructure and architecture of the internet. But we might also be thinking about a much broader and perhaps more compelling set of questions about the policy issues that implicate the internet, regulation of online gambling, freedom of speech or expression, depending on what country you're in, election integrity, mis- and disinformation, future of commerce, child sex abuse imagery. And to some people, myself included, Both those narrower questions about internet infrastructure and architecture and broader questions about regulation of content and online applications are equally important and closely intertwined. And so as a public interest technologist, I research both components of internet governance, the broad and the narrow questions. Presently, I am a Landecker Democracy Fellow with Humanity in Action in conjunction with the Alfred Landecker Foundation. And practically, that means that I work within internet coordination and governance bodies as a practitioner and as a researcher exploring tech regulation, at least within um, industry-dominated bodies or 
perhaps self-regulatory bodies or quasi-regulators. Um, I, I explore asymmetric power relations and I explore questions around fundamental rights. And so through my work, I'm engaging with governments, with companies, with technical communities and civil society, ultimately to advance social justice issues. In terms of how I sort of ended up in this particular position at the moment, uh, it, it, it sort of comes back to when I finished graduate school and I kind of fell into it, that I kind of realized that politics isn't just for politicians, that we all have a responsibility and indeed the power to advocate for what we believe in and to stand up for what we consider to be correct. And I just came to realize myself that I wasn't particularly happy with some decisions that I saw being made about the internet. And I realized that unlike other fields of public life, which really are dominated by states, how the internet is governed is much more collaborative and that there was scope for me to be able to uh, be opinionated but informed and to be able to make contributions and to, however small, be able to influence certain trajectories of the internet for millions of people worldwide. And so that is something that I just jumped into and here I am today. Such a fascinating story uh, and, you know, the broad geography and all the issues that you work on that I would love to dig deeper um, as we uh, continue with our conversation. Um, but before that, I want to to ask you to maybe explain a bit more what, like, you wear different hats. You are a researcher and you also do policy advocacy. Just maybe explain these different roles uh, to our audience and how those come together. And, you know, one question that I sometimes get from people that want to enter this field is whether they need to define the one role that they need to the one hat they need to wear when they are in this space. And you you were a couple, uh, if not more. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, the differences and similarities and how to make it work all together. There are really two responses that I have to one question. The first is to agree, yes, I do wear multiple hats. Uh, now, the question of if someone else is joining this space, should they wear, should they be a specialist and only wear one hat or should they be a bit of a generalist and wear multiple? It, there's a good question there around what is the most strategic path forward to take, because it is very easy to be pulled this way, that way, or the other. If I was a newcomer in the field, I might actually say it can be a good idea to try to narrow down what you work on and to only take this small sliver of what interests you and where you think you can make a real impact and only one, wear one hat. I think that could be the strategic answer. Personally, however, I didn't take that approach. Uh, I do wear multiple hats. And partially that is out of necessity. Uh, partially that is because I care about a whole range of issues and partially it's because of a sense of responsibility that when you look around and you see that there are issues that are so important that no one, I consider myself to be a member of civil society because I generally work on, I, I generally take positions that are not of interest to states or, or to markets. And so as a sense of responsibility, if I see an issue that needs such a perspective and no one else is offering it, I feel, I would feel guilty not to step forward and to bring my perspective to the table. Um, 
but that's not necessarily strategic. That's just because someone has to say it sometimes. So I wear multiple hats. As a researcher, I try to, as a good researcher, I always try to be objective and I always try to explore different research questions in a manner that is appropriate. And I try then as a practitioner to apply the research that I generate so that the recommendations can be implemented. And I always try to position myself more as a rapporteur than as some, than as an analyst or someone opinionated, because I'm often not advancing my personal position on an issue. I'm generally advancing the interests of a broad swath of non-state and non-market actors and what positions they have, which can often run contrary to my own personal positions on a lot of the issues. But I'm pretty good at separating my personal perspectives from the positions of those who are in different circumstances than myself. So I wear multiple hats, uh, researcher, because I want to be collating the opinions of others in a way that is broadly representative and also objective. Practitioner, because I think to put policy briefs or white papers out there that are going to go on a shelf that no one is going to read is not necessarily the best way forward. It doesn't really align with my personal theory of change. I want to see things being implemented. I also do enjoy building coalitions of the stakeholders, something I think civil society is not very good at that I've been trying to push back upon and to try to sort of change people's thinking on is um, civil society is more leveraged than we think. And also that I think that there is value in building partnerships with the private sector or with governments and working together to try to bring about solutions to issues. There are trade-offs that we can accept. There are so many different technology policy issues that are complicated, but there are some that are really not. And when we are able to work with others um, to come to some sort of mutually agreeable path forward, where we can reach that rough consensus, I sort of want us to take it. And so that's all of what I'm about. I'm not about sacrificing principles, but I am about sort of acknowledging when we can work together to find a path forward that is better than the present one. Love that. Uh, and I think we need to have more discussions on this, especially in internet governance, as we talk about multi-stakeholderism. I think it's just turned into a buzzword after a while, but what it really means in practice and where we can take it next, I think is the main question um, that everybody in this space has. Um, uh, that is something that I would love us to discuss a bit further. Um, but before we get there, what are some of the issues on top of mind for you? Any specific projects you work on that you are excited about that you can also share? It's a really interesting time at the moment to look actually away from the multi-stakeholder space to look into the more multilateral space. So for many reasons, many very good reasons, traditionally, we have embraced a multi-stakeholder model of internet governance that gives supposedly equal footing to all stakeholder groups, be they governments, private sector, civil society, technical community. I say in theory because in practice it never happened. In practice, there were structural barriers that prevented multi-stakeholderism from really working. These institutions might be procedurally open, but culturally they are very closed. 
So I've always been a little bit skeptical of multi-stakeholderism, but I have been an advocate of the model. <laughs> so in theory, I love it. In practice, it doesn't work. So when the UN Secretary General in 2018 convened what was called the High-Level Panel on Digital Cooperation, I was a little bit skeptical about any high-level initiatives that were seeking to improve how the internet is governed, because I think there was a lot of room for things to go wrong. That panel later developed a roadmap to advance this theme, and that roadmap led to the establishment of a leadership panel to strengthen the UN's Internet Governance Forum, and it also led to the appointment last year of Singil as technology envoy. And he has been developing the Global Digital Compact that the UN Secretary General originally proposed in our common agenda back in 2021, which is going to form part of next year's Summit of the Future, which has this objective of addressing gaps in global governance and advancing a reinvigorated multilateral system. So I've been really fascinated by these new attempts from government-dominated bodies to try to reimagine how the internet could be governed in the future, which is not purely multi-stakeholder because ultimately, well, governments are going to have the final say over everything, but there is way more scope than in previous multilateral fora for the involvement of non-state actors. I think there are huge legitimacy issues that multi-stakeholder for haven't addressed. Who has the right to speak on behalf of civil society? Uh, I point to sometimes these what I call Trojan horse NGOs, um, legitimate nonprofit organizations who may be a registered 501c3, for example, but which advance fringe issues or sort of edge push for edge cases generally to... An example would be the International Olympic Committee or the Red Cross. These are legitimate nonprofit organizations with very unique concerns over intellectual property. Their concerns are probably more in line with the private sector than they are with civil society in general. They could not care less about many of the issues that civil society fights for. So I sort of term them affectionately Trojan horse NGOs, because while they may claim to have the legitimacy to speak on behalf of civil society, they advance different issues. And so I'm really interested by this idea that we can have a reasonable accreditation process to be able to distinguish between different actors who are then able to, in good faith, input into binding processes in order to be able to contribute to reforms that will allow the internet to grow in what I consider to be a positive direction, or at least hopefully a positive direction. There's always opportunity for capture, of course, but at least at the moment, I'm really happy about it. So if, so I've been focusing a lot on exploring the UN system over the past three years. We also have at the same time UNESCO's Internet for Trust Initiative, which is focused on digital cooperation and building an inclusive development-oriented internet. Um, the ITU Radio Communication Assembly, the high-level political forum on sustainable development are trying to bring about linkages between the sustainable development goals and WISIS. WISIS being the World's Model Information Society, which next year is the 20-year anniversary. It will be undergoing a comprehensive review. 
And so there's just so much going on in the multilateral space at the moment and the intergovernmental space, which I think is super interesting and where civil society needs to be paying more attention, particularly if we are unhappy with the status quo, because for the first time, at least in my career, my career is not that long in its governance. We're talking about eight years, but at least for the first time in the eight years I've been in the field, there is a chance for real change. And so I'm sort of embracing it and monitoring it. We'll be right back. The Internet Law and Policy Foundry is hosting our annual trivia night on June 12, 2023 in Washington, D.C. from 6 to 10 p.m. Make sure to check out the show notes for the registration link and join us for the hottest tech policy social of the summer. I'll be there and so will a ton of other fellows. Come meet us, say hi, and take part in some trivia. We'd love to see you. So many things are happening at the same time, and uh, I would love to dig deeper into your thoughts on this shift from um, multi multi-stakeholderism to more multilateral um, or bilateral relations, um, especially given, I think, the global developments come on top of all the local or regional regulatory developments that also shift the roles of different stakeholders. And you also mentioned before that um, you think there could be more collaboration or cooperation between different stakeholders that are not happening. So I would love to hear um, your position on this or if you, what you have witnessed and experienced in your not that short career in internet governance <laughs> so far. I'll take them in reverse order. I think there needs to be more cooperation. I think that we, we in civil society have more in common, particularly with democratic governments then we do differences. One of the problems that I see within multi-stakeholder fora is who are the representatives of governments at the table? Generally, they come from trade departments. They come from law enforcement. These are not the right people for governments to be sending to different fora. I've never seen a data protection commissioner sent. I've never seen someone with knowledge of constitutional law, for example. There are many background, I've never seen a consumer protection agency present. There are many government stakeholders who would be very aligned with civil society who are not invited to speak on behalf of their government at a multi-stakeholder forum. I have tried inviting them. I have invited data protection commissioners, and then they don't get accredited by their government to join the delegation. And so the issue is partially not even the construction of, of forums, but the composition of government delegations and the capture of government delegations by certain regulatory bodies. That's a really challenging issue to address. I don't have a good solution to that. But I do think that ideally we would be having government delegations that represent a broader swath of interests. At the same time, there are representatives within the current um, government delegations who could be more open to collaboration with civil society. And we don't pursue it because civil society, for example, never wants to collaborate with law enforcement. There is terrible perceptions of what law enforcement represents. And sometimes that is very valid. And sometimes I would posit 
not everyone in law enforcement, particularly those being sent to international fora, uh, are completely uh, unsympathetic to the ideas that we are bringing forward. And so I think we do have to sort of be open to working with more people. And one of the things that I love about multi-stakeholderism is that it has allowed me to meet top subject matter experts from around the world. It's allowed me to be mentored by different people. Uh, it has allowed me to learn about emerging technologies in their earlier stages and maybe only in a small way, but to be able to influence their development. And something that I think is just so great about multi-stakeholderism is the fact that through informed contributions and through principled interventions, we are all able to help ensure that the internet meets the needs, expectations, and desires of people everywhere. So I want all of us to be really focused on that and to be thinking about who can we work within, not just within our tribes, <laughs> but within um, the entire field out there, because there is often synergies and places that we least expect. And I do believe as unpopular a position as this might be sometimes, that uh, everyone is working in good faith. And I don't believe that everyone is out there trying to undermine the internet, even if, if that is the perception that, that some people have, or if there is a perception that capitalism is undermining our ability to create something better. I really think that's true. I really like the idea that we sometimes forget that we work with people. That's what I hear from what you were saying, that we actually work with people. And even if we say, oh, this person is from law enforcement or from this government, this person in their personal capacity or maybe even their official may have very different views that will offer opportunities to push this issue forward in a direction that will benefit everyone. I think this is a very interesting perspective that we don't, I think, don't hear enough of. Um, so yeah, thanks for for sharing this uh, with us. Um, I also want to ask you to share your um, perspective on the differences between, if there are differences uh, between being in a more um, technical uh, communities, um, let's say ICANN uh, or IEEE or any of those communities versus the Internet Governance Forum or working on Global Digital Compact, like. Are these processes and communities similar or different and can they learn from each other? It's a good question. Are they similar or different? They're both. They're both similar in more ways than we appreciate and they're different in different ways. And can they learn from each other? Yes, but they won't. They should learn from each other, but they're not going to. Um, so in very technical fora, if we think of ICANN, for example, or the work of the IETF, there is a view that the work that they work on is not political. And this is something that uh, one scholar, the anthropologist, Corian Kaff, pushes back on by saying that actually their work is inherently political. And even the mere statement of saying that they work only on technical issues, they um, care only about running code, that is political. The decision to not consider human rights the decision to not consider the impact of your activities on the greater world is a political choice. It is not that you are apolitical. It is simply a decision that you have made to work that way. So that is something that I observe within more technical fora 
is that there is this idea that their activities have less of an impact on the world at large. That as long as a system is redundant and is available whenever someone needs it, they have done their job. It is not their responsibility to consider the impact of their service on society. I disagree with that. Now, the IGF is explicitly a discussion forum, so it does not have a remit to make any decisions, which is a huge weakness in it. And something that I really like about what the Global Digital Compact has proposed is that it is looking to strengthen and to fortify the IGF so that it actually can do something. Because quite frankly, to have a discussion forum is useless. If there are no binding outcomes from the discussions that are taking place, why bother? I don't think the IGF I don't think the IGF is useless. I do think the IGF can become a really productive forum. And I'm really glad that there is this proposal to strengthen it because it needs to really improve. But it's not just a case of needing a different mandate. It's also a case of needing funding and resourcing to be able to convene working groups that are able to reach binding outputs. That intercessional work is expensive. So the IGF needs to be supported in that way. It is also important that we provide ways of boosting the capacity, upskilling people to be able to participate in these processes, both in terms of the soft skills that people need to participate and the hard skills, hard skills being the, 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 the raw technical knowledge to be able to be effective in technical environments, as well as the knowledge of the drivers of racial, social, and economic injustice in order to be able to understand the harms that different technologies are causing. Soft skills as well as, shouldn't have to be sad, but how do you show grace and kindness? Not everyone knows. Um, Not everyone has been uh, taught that, apparently. And so uh, we have to work on both the soft skills and the hard skills, um, particularly for entrenched interests and for people who have been participating in bodies for 20 or 30 years, sometimes um, uh, participants, new participants do not look exactly like them and they are not sure how to handle that situation. It's not a slight or criticism of anyone in particular, but it is simply a case of when um, demographics that are active within bodies changing, um, the onus is not only on newcomers, but also on the uh, old gatekeepers uh, to try to change a little bit as well, to create a welcoming environment. And so we all have a responsibility there. So I think ultimately all of these four are more similar than they are different in that um, they, they have the same challenges to participation for everyone. This is both um, a lack of awareness as to how you really onboard newcomers a lack of awareness among newcomers as to how they can get involved, a perception that you must be in a leadership position to make a difference when you don't have to be, bullying from community gatekeepers. Um, I've seen this quite frequently that uh, because of what I called the Trojan NGOs before, because Trojan NGOs do try to become active within different fora, you do need community gatekeepers who are able to sort of slam the door sometimes and say, you don't speak for anyone out. 
But at the same time, they don't only say that to to children um, or NGOs, they also say it to people who don't look like them, who might be, um, uh, maybe don't have fluency in the language of forum. There are cultural factors there, and that's not acceptable. And then there's also horse trading. People, um, uh, horse trading being shrewd bargaining that this, you know, human rights concerns can get um, negotiated away or compromised in the multi-stakeholder model. And that's not great either. At the same time, we do need some assessment of trade-offs. Some trade-offs are okay. But there are all of these challenges that all of these four have. And I think if we are looking at UN processes in particular that have a little bit more awareness of some of these concerns, I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing. I think the Global Digital Compact is a really good attempt to try to fortify existing institutions by overhauling them. I don't think we need new bodies. I think we really just need existing. And I say that as well because personally, I like to work within normative frameworks. I'm not someone who's looking to burn down the system. Many activists who I really respect have good arguments for that. Personally, that is not my theory of change, but I am very okay with tinkering around the edges of forums and trying to fix them to make them more representative. And that's what I see happening at the moment with the Global Digital Compact. And I think with the WISIS Plus 20 review process next year is also forcing ICANN, for instance, to look at how does it remain relevant? Because the original WISIS back in 2003 really did focus on ICANN. ICANN is not as relevant as it used to be. However, there is the concern that if something is going to happen to the Tunis agenda, it could impact ICANN and it could impact other internet governance coordination bodies. And seeing them be a bit more proactive and looking to understand what reforms they can make that they would be comfortable with is really positive to me. So really happy to see that the future looks like we are going to reform institutions to hopefully make them better. Thank you so much for sharing that. So many interesting nuggets uh, in your um, perspective. And you already mentioned several soft and hard skills that you think are necessary in this field and some of the challenges that you um, have seen in this space. Um, So given all the big developments in this space that you talked about, uh, what are some of the resources or ways that you think that newcomers who will always want to have more newcomers in this space, there is a whole, you know, wing of initiatives aimed at bringing more newcomers to this space like what do these people need to know do or follow up on to to find their footing um in this space given the big picture shifts yeah i think the first thing i would say is join us if you care about the internet and you do want to make the internet if you think the internet does not work for your community and you have ideas on how you can fix it, in particular, then we need you to come and help us fix it. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have ideas just yet, you can observe. And when you do have ideas, you can become a more active contributor to the process. So that the first piece of advice I always give is just the reminder that you do not need to be in a formal leadership role to make a difference in internet governance. You just need to be persistent. You need to bring solid evidence to the table. You need to be good at 
building coalitions, particularly with people from different stakeholder groups. And if you're resourceful, you can create your own opportunities. At the same time, if you can get into a formal leadership role, that can be a way to have an outsized impact. If you can, and a leadership role can also include being uh, being a pen holder and taking the first draft on a proposal. And then uh, there's a lot of power in doing that rather than redlining someone else's document. If you just put the first proposal out there, if you are quick enough and to be able to do that, that can be really helpful. I also believe in not slamming the door shut behind you. Open up opportunities to other people when you can. Um, write a lot. The best advice that I got was put my opinions and work down on paper. It doesn't even have to be good. That helps. But for your ideas to go anywhere, people need something to cite. And the sooner that you do that, this, this, the sooner that other people will take up your ideas. This format, like at the moment where we're speaking, it works for some people, but some people learn better through reading. And it, just the best advice I ever got was just write more so that other people know what, where you stand. And sooner than you think, you'll be called a thought leader and invited to expand upon your ideas at a conference. I can assure you of that. You do need to maintain currency in the trends and technologies that are affecting digital rights policy issues, as well as the different mitigation strategies that are being experimented with. So when you spoke about, or you asked me about resources before, I tend to recommend uh, uh, industry publications like The Register is very good. Um, Circle ID is good. There are other publications out there that are very good at, under, at summarizing different developments that are taking place. So you have to read. You do need to build up your technical knowledge because ultimately technical discussions require it. So I, I'm certainly not one to recommend any formal programs. I think those are not necessary. But I think you need to just maintain currency in trends, um, keep writing, build coalitions with others, hustle. Don't be put off if you don't see an invitation to join a working group or, or anything. Create your own. Um, Funding-wise, pitch projects to funders. You can make it happen. If no one else is working on the issues that you care about, that's great. That's an opportunity for you to be able to step forward and to lead on that. But if someone is working on issues that you care about, I am sure they would be very happy for you to approach them and to ask how you can collaborate and work together. Because many people I know in this space that are very successful are also either burnt out or exhausted and would love some extra hands on deck as well. Yes, definitely work on yourself, um, but also create your own opportunities. And for, from my side, I'll just add that the space with all the issues that we already mentioned, I think it still is very welcoming and people would love to have more voices, more perspectives, and just more people to collaborate with. So we'll plus one on your call to join the space <laughs> just start there just join and then we'll take it from there um and to wrap up this um discussion i would love to know what is next for you what are some things you are excited about you mentioned a lot of projects but what is what are a couple of those that you are working on next i i think that the 
what what I am most we're recording this interview in mid May of 2023. So the project that is up next that I'm super excited about, which is only 11 days away from now, is to do with RightsCon. Um, I managed to secure funding to bring around 15 people to RightsCon, so I'm hosting a day zero event. Is again, it's to do with sort of creating opportunities, not just for yourself, but for other people in the field. And if you see allies in adjacent topic areas that are not involved in the issues you care about, finding ways to sort of draw them in. So I've been working on how to get worker collectives and trade unions understanding how they are impacted by the Global Digital Compact. And so I found some great trade unions that have really good positions on tech policy issues. I'm getting them to RightsCon. We're doing a workshop on day zero where we're going to embed them with knowledge and skills to get them to understand how they can be involved in this process. And that is something that is taking up all of my time at the moment. And I'm super happy that it's come together. And I'm very happy that I was able to get the funding to make that happen. After that, I also have a workshop proposal for the IGF that I submitted, which is, I don't even know if it will be approved, but basically it's looking to apply queer disability and decolonial theory to push back a bit on some understandings of internet governance and to propose a way forward to empower traditionally excluded communities to find a home within the IGF. I have a good feeling it will be accepted by the MAG, the multi-stakeholder advisory group, because no one else has proposed something like this in previous years. So I have my fingers crossed that this session will be a way to propose how we can make the IGF more of a safer space, if you will. But even if the session isn't formally accepted, this is something that I care a lot about at the moment, which is trying to tinker around the edges of existing internet governance bodies and internet coordination fora to try to make them more, if not inclusive, at least representative of the concerns of a greater swath of people. And that's something that I'm trying to do within the IGF later this year. So excited uh, for the proposal and for the RightsCon event. Um, definitely keeping my fingers crossed on the workshop proposal for IGF. Um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join Tech Policy Grind and sharing what you do and your perspective on so many important issues. Uh, we will make sure to include the resources um, that you mentioned in the uh, episode description for our audience to check and um, best of luck with all your initiatives and looking forward to working with you in this space moving forward. Thanks so much, Mary. It was great speaking with you today. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.